Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. New Hope. Thanks for participating in our Sunday services today. My name is Hannah. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. And if you've heard me teach before, or if you've just been in a conversation with me, you probably know that I love to explore in the outdoors. So a couple of years ago, my housemate, Sari, and I went to go visit the Ape Caves up near Mount St. Helens up in Washington. And I had gone when I was a kid before with my family and friends several times, actually. So it was kind of a familiar place to me. I remember when I was little, I would be holding my dad's hand and it was just this dramatic experience going from light to darkness, going farther into the tunnel, into the cave. And I had those those light up shoes. They were big in the 90s when you would take a step, they would light up. And so I would just be stomping my way through like the, the slippery rock floor just to try and get more light around around me in this dark cave. This last time that I went with Sari, it was, it must have been a weekday or something because there was like no one else there. I think it was still a little snowy too in early spring. And so as we were walking into the cave, there was one group coming out, but then we didn't see anyone else the entire time that we were there. It's kind of like a new element of spooky. Normally the ape caves are quite popular and lots of people are coming and going. There's lots of additional flashlights and headlamps around. But this time it was just Sari and I. So we're walking more, making our way into the dark cave. And it's beautiful, right? When you're in there, we finally got to the, to the cavern, sort of at the end, about, about a mile in. And we took a seat on the rock and looked up and just noticed the, the formations that the minerals had made, the, the colors on the, on the rock wall. We were using our headlamps to, to look for where bat caves might be and kind of spooking ourselves. And then Sari had this idea. She said, let's turn off our headlamps. I can feel my heart start to beat even faster just retelling the story because I'm a little bit afraid of the dark, not going to lie. And so when Sari suggested that, I was like, I kind of like wrestled for a minute. And it's like, okay, I'm up for the challenge. Let's do it. So then we clicked off our headlamps and everything was pitch black. It was silent. We couldn't hear any street noise, any, any other voices around us. All we heard was the drip, drip, drip of the cave. I could only last about 60 seconds until I had to click my light back on because it was so disorienting. I had my hand like held up to my face and c- couldn't even see it. Sari, I knew she was sitting next to me, couldn't see her. Have you ever had an experience like that where your senses are just totally deprived and you're disoriented and you feel vulnerable or exposed? In the passage that we're exploring today, the Apostle Paul uses the same imagery to to stir in us, to evoke in us the visceral reactions to light and darkness. We're in the middle of a teaching series going through the letter of Ephesians. 
This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and while it was written to the church in Ephesus, scholars agree that it was most likely not just written specifically to that church, but it was meant to be circulated among the early churches in the ancient Near East. So it was actually a letter that that was kind of meant to frame up for all of those early churches who the church was called called to be in light of the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Scholars also suggest that this letter is in the literature category called apocalyptic, which means to reveal something that is unseen. Apocalyptic literature is full of drama and metaphor and imagery. It can be a weird and exciting and odd genre to read if you've engaged some of it in the scriptures. And it invites the reader into this adventure, into this um, opportunity to discover this world that is unseen, that's beyond our reality. The letter to the Ephesians, it highlighted to the early church who they were called to be. And in our day and age, the time is ripe, particularly here in, in American Christianity, the time is ripe to be asking those questions once again. Who are we as followers of Jesus and who is the church called to be in the world? Today, we'll be looking at Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, and we'll be hearing from Dave Getchis read the scriptures to us. From Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be any hint of a sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, first things first. So this passage opens up with that familiar word, therefore. And Denise talked about this a little bit last week, that that, that little word isn't consequential. In fact, Paul uses it nine times in the second half of this letter to the Ephesians. The first half is all about God, who God is, what God has done, how God sees us, and how God relates to us as the church. And then the second half of this letter is all about our collective life of the church in light of the first half of the letter. 
So each time, each of those nine times that Paul uses the word therefore in chapters four through six, it's meant to remind us of this inextricable connection that the second half of the letter has to the first. Our living as the church, being the people of God, isn't generated from ourselves. It's not God saying, okay, so you've got it, right? You've got your marching orders. I'll see you later. No, our ability to live our calling as the church is fundamentally sourced and sustained by the Spirit of God living in us and recreating God's character and God's love in us. Paul goes on to list several behaviors in the passages, behaviors and attitudes that have no place in the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. So it's going to be really fun to talk through all those, isn't it? Let's work through them a little bit. First, the word for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia, which literally translates as male prostitute. But more broadly, this term refers to giving oneself over, giving oneself over to a diminished or a distorted view of God's vision for sex and sexuality. This isn't about purity culture, and it's not about just adhering to this arbitrary moral code around sex. This is about embracing the vision for sex and sexuality that God desires for us, that God desires for God's creation. It does have a good and right and true place in our lives, and we can trust God to lead us into that regardless of our circumstances. So as a single person, I've talked to God a lot about sex and sexuality. How do I let this part of me, this, that God created, have its good and right and true place in my life? I've gotten it right, and I've gotten it wrong. But in the heart of God, there's no place of judgment or condemnation. The heart of God, he, he wants our wholeness, our joy, our peace. And I've witnessed time and time again, God champion those things in me, even when I was unable or unwilling to champion those things in myself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants freedom and healing for you in this aspect of your life? If there is tension or struggle in your relationship to sex and sexuality, maybe there's hurt or wounds or, or fear or shame or just a lack of peace, I want to invite you to talk to God about that, to keep it in the light, to talk to a trusted friend. You're welcome to talk to me or another pastor that you trust. Keep it in the light. There's no shame here. There's a certain kind of deception in this area of sex and sexuality that Paul warns about. Whether you're married or single, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or a woman, sex, when sex and sexuality becomes our first focus, when it becomes the primary object of our worship, our identity, our devotion, our attention, we are deceived. It can't deliver on that promise. It can't hold the weight of that. It wasn't meant to. And that's really what this whole list that Paul is writing, that's really what it's about. Sexual morality, impurity, greed, which we could do a whole message on, that posture of, of entitlement, of self-centered living where my having is more important than, than your flourishing. We could do a whole sermon on that. Paul sums that whole list up as idolatry, the giving of our heart, our devotion, 
our focus, our energies, giving that, that first to things that can't deliver on the promise that God can. Our worship is only safe with God. When we give ourselves first to other things, we harm and diminish ourselves. We harm and diminish others. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say that our actions and our words, that will reflect that. God cares too much about our freedom and our healing and our flourishing to allow that destruction of darkness to go on forever. And that's where Paul starts to talk about God's wrath. There will be an end to it. Scholar Lynn Kohick, who we've been using her resource on the book of Ephesians, she puts it this way. God's wrath is not an angry emotion. It is action that sets the wrong to right. The sober fact is that to make all things new, the old ways of sin and violence must be destroyed. This is necessary for the equation of God's new creation plan to work. In the forthcoming unity of all things under Christ, there is no place for those who reject or resist the mercy of the loving Father, those who perpetuate violence, abuse of power, and unchecked desires are invited through the rich mercy of God to be made alive in Christ. God invites us to see sin as he does, as those thoughts and practices that prevent our flourishing and tarnish the Imago Dei. I really appreciate that, that description of sin. To sin is to participate in the thoughts and practices that prevent our collective flourishing and tarnish the Imago Dei, the image of God, the precious image of God uniquely on display in every person. Let us not be deceived. Instead, Paul continues, Remember the first half of this whole letter, the first three chapters? Remember who you are in Christ? Remember the riches of grace lavished upon us? Remember the incomprehensible love of Christ in which we are and always will be rooted and established in? Remember the beyond our imagination power of God at work in our very lives? You are light in the Lord, Paul says. What if we lived like that was true? What if we said yes to this adventure of discovering and of recovering all that is good and right, just and true in us and in the world? What if we lived as the dearly loved children that we already are? Here's the thing, though. That sounds, that sounds great. The what ifs, love it. But how? I have very little patience for anything that sounds like try harder, do better, be perfect. Because nine out of 10 times, right, we already know that we're not who, we're where, where we ought to be. The question we, we want to engage with is how? How do we live as children of light in a world that's held captive by darkness? Striving to be better is just putting the same shame and fear-based fuel in a different car. I can often read the Bible with that shame-based lens as this harsh critique of all that I'm failing at and a fresh command to do better, to try harder. It can leave kind of this spirit of despair, I'm not good enough, or oh, I just want to give up because I can't figure this thing out. Or like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, trying harder and trying to be perfect and do all the right things, 
can lead to bitterness, self-righteousness, exclusion, and judgment. It puts all the focus on the self, on us, and doesn't leave any room for compassion, for connection, for grace, for love. And that's not the heart of our God. That's not the spirit of God's word. God hungers for us to know life abundant. God hungers for us to know God's peace. God hungers for us to know what it's like to be free, to be free to love and be loved, free to move in the world with security and right relationship and with peace. What we hunger for is genuine transformation, not just trying harder. So in prepping for this message, I thought, where do I see this transformation thing actually happening? In my own journey, I know that I've learned a ton from the the language and the principles and practices of the the recovery movement, things like AA or CODA and the 12 Steps. But since I'm not an expert or a practitioner in that field, I wanted to learn a little bit more. Like, I'm pretty sure that this is an effective form, an effective strategy of transformation, but, but I wanted to dig a little deeper. Last week, I had the privilege of talking with David McKinnon, who is here at New Hope. He's a member from Mount Scott who, who adopted, was adopted into our church earlier this year. And he runs a weekly AA group here um, at the church on Thursday nights. So he was really gracious and let me pick his brain for a little while last Sunday night. And we had this really fun conversation, exploring, conver- exploring questions like, how do people change? Can people change? What's the difference between trying harder and real transformation? Sometimes it can look like the same, but what's different? What have you learned in your years, both being in recovery and working in recovery spaces? At New Hope, we're super intentional to not just give you more information, to not just make your head bigger and turn you into a Christian bobblehead, but to invite you into practices and opportunities that engage our whole selves, that put our real and messy and imperfect lives in dialogue with the scriptures and in dialogue with the heart of God. And that's where we're headed now. So from my conversation with David and from the the text that we've been looking at in Ephesians 5, I've got three practices for us to engage with as we seek to participate in our own transformation, as we seek to live as children of light. All right, are you with me? Three practices, let's go. Practice number one, be honest. Be honest. Did you know, I just learned this when I talked with David, that the 12 steps only mention alcohol two times. In the first step, And in the last step, step one, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Those are the only two places in all the 12 steps that alcohol or some version of that word is mentioned. What that speaks to me is sub in whatever you want. Powerless over anger, powerless over other people, powerless over sex, powerless over pornography, over judgmentalism, over work, over video games, over food, powerless over shopping, over politics, over our image control, over our compulsions, over social media, powerless over whatever it is that has a grip on us that we struggle to say no to 
whatever it is that we're justifying that makes us believe that it holds our freedom and our hope and our happiness, that is our fruitless deed of darkness, as the Bible puts it. Not that any of those things are bad in in themselves. Some of them are, but some aren't. But the way in which we're using them can't deliver. It's taking us nowhere, but it's far from harmless. Is there something for you? I know there are for me. Maybe it hasn't quite gotten to that stage of unmanageable yet. Praise God. That's great. And yet, still any trace of that in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, is like stage one cancer. The longer it stays hidden, undiagnosed, under wraps, the longer it's no big deal in the dark, the more that shame and fear and evil, frankly, will feed that thing and steal your life. That's why Paul is using such strong language. He says, don't have even a hint of these things. If they go untreated, they will grow and they'll take your life. But then he says this, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. We often don't get the help that we need because of the shame of being exposed, of being guilty or found out. But in Christ, that lie that if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me, that lie, it has no grounds. We are loved dearly. There's no condemnation, only an invitation to healing. Christ will shine on us. We can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with God and we can be honest with the trusted people in our lives. We can have the courage to see ourselves as we truly are in all of our both andness, in all of our beauty and our brokenness. This is a spiritual practice called confession. Confession isn't meant to to bring shame, to pile it on. Confession is meant to free us from shame. And even more, it's meant to free our communities from shame too. Did you notice how Paul said that everything that is illuminated actually becomes a light itself? The very things we're ashamed of, the very things we feel disqualify us, the weaknesses and struggles and vulnerabilities we carry, those are not our liabilities. Those are our greatest assets. As we bring them into the light, the scripture says they become light for others. What if the church was a little bit more like that? What if our strength was not our perfection, but our courage to, in Christ, renounce the shame that keeps us trying harder and frees us to humbly participate in this transformation that God has for us? Ephesians scholar Timothy Gombus, who John's going to interview at the end of this series, he um, puts it this way. The way of promise is to become communities of humility, communities that confess our brokenness and failings without caring to point out those of others. We are the ones who need transformation so that we can become cultures that bless and transform others. It is only through the cultivation of cruciformity and weakness that we harness and radiate the resurrection power 
of God. So our first practice, do you remember it? Be honest. Let Christ shine on you. We're dearly loved. We can step into the light without fear, without shame, and we can acknowledge our vulnerabilities and invite Christ's healing. All right, practice number two. Are you ready? Practice number two is be open-minded. Be open-minded. There's this fascinating story in the Gospel of John in John chapter 8 where the religious leaders, they had found this woman who is, had been having sex with someone who wasn't, she wasn't married to. They brought her out in front of everyone and expected Jesus to condemn her, to judge her like they were all doing. That's not exactly what happened. Jesus instead kind of turned it around and said, if any one of you is without sin, go right ahead, throw the stone. He exposed their hypocrisy. But after that, some of those leaders actually stuck around. There was something intriguing to them. They stuck around to hear what Jesus had to say. Jesus teaches for a bit, and John tells us that some of them were actually starting to believe what he was saying. And then Jesus turns to those who are starting to believe, those early adopters, and says that if they get what he's teaching, if they really live it out, then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Which begs the question, actually, who he's talking to are the religious leaders. They had given their lives over to seeking and practicing the truth. That ought, that ought to be a humbling realization for us, that Jesus is telling them to seek the truth once they knew it, once they know it, that they will be set free, though they had spent their whole lives already doing that. That ought to inspire some humility in us. Being open-minded is our second practice in this transformation journey, because sometimes we become so formed by our culture and our surroundings, surroundings, whether religious or not, that we can't see or receive the truth that's meant to set us free. Jesus goes on to say to those same leaders, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. That's a little harsh. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Again, a humbling encounter with these, with these religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to them like this. Remember when Sari and I were in the ape caves? Had we lasted even 20 minutes in the dark without our lights on, our eyes would have adjusted up to one million times and become one million times more sensitive to the light. When our eyes have become adjusted to the darkness, the light, the truth, can be hard to bear. Remember that Ephesians is considered by many scholars to be an apocalyptic letter, a text that is revelatory in nature. It reveals what is beyond our natural, our normal, beyond our culture, our time, our space. And a trademark of apocalyptic literature is that it invites the reader, it invites the community to be discerning. There is more than meets the eye. Apocalyptic literature calls us to be open-minded, to our understanding of what is real and true. To be open-minded is to practice discernment. 
to not just accept things as the way they are, as the way they seem, but to pursue truth, to interrogate assumptions, to pay attention to the lies rumbling around in our heart and our mind and our spirit that we've agreed with that we didn't even know we had, to ask questions and to expect revelation. Verses 8 through 10, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Notice that Paul doesn't say live as a child of the light. He says live as children of the light. Discernment of goodness and righteousness and truth, it's meant to be a function of community. We can't do it alone. Together in humility, we find out what pleases the Lord, what brings delight to our creator. Together, we are open-minded to the truth. And together, we identify the lies and let the truth revealed begin to resonate and have real estate in our lives. In my conversation with David, he said, we live in a failed world. The darkness is always trying to make me believe that I am unloved. I have to not believe the liar. I have to stay in the light. As we participate in our transformation, as we live as children of light, we must practice being open-minded. For years, I had Psalm 43, or part of it, written on the the top portion of one of my walls in my bedroom. It's my go-to prayer when I feel lost or confused or alone or unsure when I'm searching out God's heart, God's vision on something. Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Send out your light and your truth, God. Let them lead us. Being open-minded to the truth. All right, last practice, practice number three. Be willing, be willing. So what's the difference between willpower and being willing? Isn't being willing just another form of, of trying harder? Sounds like it, but there's a key difference. Willpower is self effort, it's striving, it's force. But to practice being willing, however, is to open my hands, to open my heart in a posture of surrender. It's an opening of ourselves to grace. It's saying yes to God's life at work in us, not my force and striving. To be willing means we keep showing up. It means we take action in our own transformation. It might involve doing things that I love doing, and it might involve doing things that I don't love doing things that are inconvenient, that stretch me, that might be uncomfortable. One of the questions I asked David last week was, how do you understand God's grace? He was like, oh, that's a tough one. And I was like, I know, I don't know exactly know what I would say either. But I loved what he said in the conversation that transpired. He said this, grace is so easy to understand when it's the good stuff. It's harder to understand or receive when it's the inconvenient stuff or the painful stuff or the angering stuff, the costly stuff. But inconvenient and uncomfortable moments allow us to align with God's will, God's heart, God's ways. That's 
grace to turn my thoughts, my actions, and my emotions over to the care of God each and every day, each and every circumstance. Isn't that beautiful? To turn my thoughts, my actions, and my emotions into the care of God every day, every moment, every circumstance. So when the traffic is bad and we want to yell at the car next to us, that's a moment for grace. And when the kids are having a meltdown and we're at the end of our rope because it's COVID and we've been with them in this house for so long, that's a moment for grace. When I'm burned out and overcommitted and don't know how to find a better way or get the flywheel to stop, that's a moment for grace. When we lose something or someone that we love and we don't know how we're going to get through this, that's a moment for grace. When the diagnosis isn't good and the despair starts setting in, it's a moment for grace. It's these moments when we're hard-pressed, when we're scared, when we're afraid, we feel alone or unsure, numb maybe. These are the moments of our transformation. Not will we, in our own strength, choose the good path, but will we be willing to turn our thoughts our actions and our emotions over to the care of God and take our next best step. That's the call of discipleship. Verses one and two, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That reminds us that Jesus struggled with this path. He didn't deny the pain of choosing the cross, and he didn't just white-knuckle willpower his way through. He struggled with the Father. He went to the garden where he regularly prayed. He asked his friends to companion him, and he, he engaged with God on this. He turned his thoughts, his actions, and his emotions over to the care of God, and then he took his best next step. He shows us, he showed us how to be willing even in the most devastating of circumstances. And he will show us how to be willing, how to surrender ourselves to the care of God, whatever we're facing today, tomorrow, and always. Practice number three, be willing. Open your life to the grace of God. Paul knew this from experience. He begged God, to get rid of his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. But Jesus said that he had something better for Paul than just removing that vulnerability. It was through Paul's weakness, through that vulnerability, that God's grace and strength could flow. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, it's made perfect in your weakness. Be willing to let God's grace flow in you. We can read passages like the one from Ephesians today and feel inadequate or maybe even defensive. Like, oh, I don't like that. We're keenly aware of our inability to measure up to the call of following Jesus in our own strength. So I have a proposition for you. Let's not try and do that. Let's not try and follow Jesus in our own strength. We don't have to try harder. Instead, we can just participate in our own transformation. We can be honest. We can be open-minded. 
and we can be willing. Christ will shine on us.